Good morning, everybody. Let's see how this goes. Happy Easter. Come on now. There we go. Um, Easter is a big day, of course, in the life of the church. Uh, here's, here, let me tell you the way that the Apostle Paul kind of framed this up for us. This is 1 Corinthians 15. I'll be paraphrasing. He basically says that if Jesus is alive, then we are like set up for all of eternity in ways that we cannot possibly fathom forever and always. If he's not alive, on the other hand, then we're literally the most pathetic, pitiful people on the planet. That's a big swing, all right? That's like, this is literally the hinge of reality. Everything turns on this. Is Jesus alive? Today is the day that we celebrate that Jesus is alive. And that's a great relief and a great joy. Let me take a moment to pray, and then we'll jump right into the sermon. Jesus, thank you so much for being here in this place, for meeting with us in this moment. You are here Would you make us mindful of your presence, aware, Lord? Would you right now attune our hearts? Turn down the things that are vying for our attention, the distractions that are stealing our focus. Turn up our sense of expectation because we know we're in your presence. Turn up our sense of unmitigated joy, Lord, because you are alive and you are well and because you live we live. Because you live, as we sang about earlier, death is just a doorway into resurrected life. Thank you, King Jesus, victorious Lord, for what you have done. Please meet with us, Lord, as we go uh, to your text and to the word. God, speak to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear and let your kingdom come and your will be done in this room, even as it is in heaven. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was thinking about what an incredible, you know, ultimate hinge of reality it is that Jesus is alive. And there's a sense in which we feel joy at times um, because it's just such a tremendous relief. Uh, and that reminded me of a story when I was, uh, in, I was a freshman in college and there was this girl who uh, wanted me to go. It was, another, it was at another college to, on this, like, it was like a dance. It felt like high school all over again, actually. It was like this, it was this dance. And the girl, she's a cool, she's a wonderful girl, actually. Uh, but it was like a friend thing, and that was made clear. And yet I wasn't, like, confident that that's exactly where she landed on that. And so I was super uncomfortable the whole time. I was afraid to do the wrong thing, say, that, be a jerk, lead on. I was like, I'm in this de- delicate dance. And it was just it was awkward. It's my nightmare, honestly. Great girl, horrible night. And it was like six hours long. Just, is this ever going to end? ever going to end? And then finally it's over. I was like, great. I just want to get her home and go to bed. I need this to be over. And then, of course, on the way home, I get lost. And if you know me at all, it's like, of course you got lost. I always get lost. If you've ever rode in the vehicle, it's like, here we go again with me. I got lost. I get lost. I'm driving around. I'm trying to figure out where. I just want this night to be over. And just when I think that I can't get any worse. Blue lights. I have been pulled over. So I pull over. What did I do? My mind starts racing because here's the thing. I've been pulled over before and I look down and I go, oh yeah, I was speeding. I totally deserve this. I'm usually speeding. But in this case, I was like, I'm lost. I'm driving super slow. So what could it possibly be? And my mind just started spiraling, you know, just like the scenarios just get worse and worse. Oh, maybe I've got a tail light out or maybe I'd, maybe my plates aren't registered or maybe the girl I'm with is a terrorist and this is a part of a larger operation. Like my mind just went, maybe somebody playing drugs in the truck. What is happening? So I panicked and I just got all this anxiety and I'm exhausted. I'm just like this ball of energy, right? And you roll, roll down the window and he says, sir, have you had anything to drink tonight? 
And the thing is, I hadn't. I was 19 at this point. I never had to period ever. And I was so relieved because that meant he thinks I'm drunk, which means nothing is going to happen here. Everything is going to be okay. I was so relieved from this ball of tension that I laughed out loud in his face. Sir, could you step out of the vehicle? <laughs> I was like, now we're doing that whole thing, obviously. And everything worked out. We got the girl home. It was all fine. I didn't get arrested or anything like that. Uh, there was one point where I think I, I thought, because um, I'm not like, if, if you've ever been like skiing with me, which of course you haven't because I would avoid that at all costs. I don't do the balance things, you know? And at one point I'm like doing this and I, I was actually failing the sobriety test. Completely sober, failing the test, but I ended up pulling it out like with a D. Um, anyway, anyway. With that moment, that moment of relief, right, of this tension, like what is going on? And then there's relief, and it just spontaneous, involuntary laughter, all right? Because of this awkward date. It was a really weird first date for Sharon and me, actually, the way it worked out. It wasn't Sharon and me. Um, Just kidding. Uh, But that release from all of that tension, and the truth is we live, there's there's a baseline level of tension in this world, in our society, that we just carry. And part of it is just born of the fact that we know we're not right. We know I'm not exactly who I should be. There's failure, there's on my ledger, okay? Um, uh, Timothy Keller, I, I love this quote. He said, guilt is the feeling that your guilt is more than a feeling. That something's fundamentally wrong. And this is why the death and resurrection of Jesus is such a relief, such a relief, like a burst out, a burst out spontaneous laughter level of relief. Let me quickly explain why that is. Romans chapter six, verse 23 says this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus, our Lord. The wages are the punishment, the penalty for sin is death. And that's what we feel all the time. The guilt is a feeling that our guilt is more than a feeling. It's knowing this inherently written into our souls with eternity as a part of our cognizant awareness of this world and knowing that we might not be on the right track because of our own brokenness. It's correct. We are not on the right path because of our own brokenness, but Jesus came, died on the cross, took the punishment for our sins, stood in our place through the cross. And as a result, he can offer us forgiveness for our sins. But that's only half the verse. He goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. How can he offer us eternal life? He can offer us eternal, because the problem with sin, by the way, is not just that it makes us bad, it makes us dead. So how does he offer us eternal life? He offers us eternal life because he conquered death. That's why today's such a big deal. Because when he resurrected from the grave, he conquered death and now he's holding death under his thumb. And as we said, again, death is just a doorway into resurrection life. Because he conquered death, he can offer us eternal life. Forgiveness through the cross, eternal life through Jesus. That's about as good as it gets. Correction, that is as good as it gets. If you hear that and you say, okay, if that's as good as it gets, then how do I get what is as good as it gets? And the how you get the thing that's as good as it gets is um, profoundly simple and and at the same time, not at all simple. Because the answer is, how you get it is you believe. That's it. You believe. Read you one more verse, Romans 10, verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord... Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So belief in the resurrection is central. You will be saved. Believe. Just that simple. And not so simple. 
Because belief is not so simple. Belief is tricky. Belief is fuzzy and confusing. Belief is like this, this mixture of, of faith and, and doubt and obedience and trust and certainty and uncertainty all mangled together. And it's not always a direct path from unbelief to belief. And different people take different paths from unbelief to belief. So I love so much. One of the things I love so much about our text today, we're going to be in John chapter 20, by the way. If you want to find it, you can follow along. It'll be on the screen behind me. But one of the things that really stands out from John chapter 20 is how John highlights the different paths of belief for four different people, okay? And I want to show it to you. So John chapter 20, and I'm going to give you a warning here. I know better than to do this. I went to preacher school. They said, don't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to read a fairly long chunk of text, Okay, and the reason why you're not supposed to do that is because people space out when you read and they're off. Before you know it, you're thinking about lunch or squirrels or whatever else. Stay with me. All right, bring it in. <laughs> I'm going to read a few verses. Picture it with me as we go and see if maybe you can highlight the four individual characters that we're going to be able to see their pathway to belief. Try and stay with me. Here we go. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, that's the first of our four, she came to the tomb. She found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. That's the conclusion she draw. She saw the stone has been rolled away. She sees an empty tomb and she thinks some jerks stole the body. That's where she goes. Verse three, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. I have to stop here in verse three and point something out that's actually pretty important. The other disciple is John. John who wrote the letter. For some, he doesn't wanna, I guess he doesn't wanna sound vain, which is, we're gonna see is sort of a moot point coming up here, but um, John doesn't wanna refer to himself uh, directly, so he refers to himself here as the other disciple. That's relevant because we get in verse four, which always makes me laugh every time. Verse four, they were both running, but the other disciple, as in John, as in the author of the text. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Let the record show. Let the biblical record show. Faster than Peter. May it be known. Write it down. Verse 5. He, this is Peter, he stooped in. No, it's John. Sorry, because he got there first. He was perfectly clear about that. He, John, stooped and looked in, saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived, finally, not as fast, went inside. He barreled right in, did not pause. He noticed the linen wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head, this is interesting, was folded up. Now, why would it just be set aside folded up? And lying apart from the other wrappings, then the disciple, who had reached the, term, the tomb first, because he's faster, I don't know if that's been clear or not, he also went in and he also believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. All right, stay with me. Verse 11, I know it's a lot. Hang in. We're back to Mary. Mary's still a bystander watching this go down. Verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels 
one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her, because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave, which by the way, I, I cannot believe she's having a conversation with two white robed angels and she's the one who ends the conversation. I'm done with you, I'm trying to find a body. I'm out. She turned to leave, saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. She didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. What are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which is Hebrew for teacher. So now she has seen. She believes. Verse 19, stay with me. Verse 19, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them, just poof, he's in the room, he appears. And then he says what you should always say if you ever magically appear in a room, peace be with you. It's all right, it's gonna be okay. Verse 20, as he spoke, she showed them the wo- he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Now they believe. Now, a little bit more. You're going to see Thomas' story. Verse 24. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin. If you're a Sunday school right, you may have heard this Didymus. That's the original Greek here where it says twin. It's Didymus. It's where we get the word ditto. His, His nickname, I think it's clever because he was a twin. His nickname was Ditto. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, Ditto, was with the others when Jesus pardon me, was not with the others, very important, when Jesus came. And so they went and told Thomas, they're excited, guess guess what? We have seen the Lord. But he replied, and notice, he's making a diligent choice right now. He's putting his foot down and drawing a line. I won't believe, a choice is being made. I won't believe until I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, that's a long time, That's a long time for all of your best friends to be buzzing about something you don't buy. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, poof, Jesus was standing among them. Again, peace be with you. He said, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. All right. We're going to look at these four individuals who were on a pathway toward faith and identify the different paths that they took. And we're going to just take them in the order of their appearance, the first of which is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is going to to weep and to mourn at the tomb of Jesus. When she gets there, she finds it rolled away. The The stone rolled away. She looks in. She sees that the body is gone. Immediately, she assumes foul play. Somebody came and took this body. And I read that and I think, well, why... Why such a pessimistic approach? Like, that's the worst possible outcome. There's way better outcomes. Why would she jump to the worst possible outcome? And here's the thing. If you knew Mary Magdalene, you would know exactly why she jumped to the world's worst possible outcome. Because Mary Magdalene has lived a tough life. 
She has been down some long, dark, windy paths. Jesus said, who has been forgiven much, loves much. He said that about her. She's been down some dark roads. I'm betting she's been kicked in the teeth about a thousand times. So why would she look at an empty tomb and just assume the best possible scenario? All of life has taught her, you should assume the worst. So she walks in, sees an open tomb, and assumes the worst. The only good thing that's ever happened to her is Jesus. And probably since the moment he arrived, she's been waiting for that to go bad. Now it has gone bad. Life's back on track. It's a wreck once again. She sees the two disciples. They show up. They go, Jesus is alive. Still doesn't even enter her mind that it would be anything but someone has stolen the body. She sees two white robed angels. Still doesn't enter her mind that it might be the good outcome as opposed to the bad one. She sees Jesus himself, assumes it's the gardener because she can't imagine that Jesus would be alive. And then finally, Jesus speaks her name. She hears her name as only he can speak it. She recognizes this must be true. And she believes. Before we move on to the next one, I just want to pause and ask you, do you think you can relate at all, even a little, to Mary Magdalene? A little jaded, a little pessimistic, a little cynical. Sees no reason to expect the best because life has taught her to expect the worst. And because of that, belief comes hard. And trust, man, trust comes hard. Next one's Peter. Peter is the quickest to believe. He's not the quickest to the tomb. He's not the quickest in a foot raised, but he is the quickest to believe. He runs right into the tomb. And if you're a church kid, you're like, of course, Peter runs, barrels right in. That's what he does. He barrels ahead. But he looks in and he quickly evaluates the situation. He goes, wait a minute. They, what, they're body snatchers? They, they took the time to set all the linens aside and unwrap the body? And wait a minute, you're telling me that they not only unwrapped but neatly folded the head wrapping to the side? Like, no, 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 nothing about this looks like a body snatching. And then when he thinks about that, he's like, maybe it's something else. And then he remembers Jesus' teaching about the resurrection, and instantly he believes Jesus is alive. He leaps into belief. He couldn't wait to embrace it as truth. And you might hear that and go, well, why was this so easy for him? I want to be clear. There was nothing easy about it for Peter. There was nothing easy about it for Peter. The reason why Peter was so eager and ready to believe is because Peter was a desperate, broken shell of a man. This man, and we'll see more about this next week, was completely overcome with pride. He had sort of built up his own identity in the group as the tough guy, all right? And then Jesus named him the rock. He's like, yeah, I'm the rock. I'm the rock. I'm the tough guy. I'm the guy who's not afraid of nothing. I'm not afraid of nothing. And then Jesus is like, yeah, the moment things get real, you're going to deny me three times. No way. No way am I going to deny you. And he says in front of the disciples, maybe all these people will deny you. I will never deny you. A few hours later, he denies three times that he even knows him, just as Jesus said he would. The Bible says he went away weeping bitterly. Why? Because his identity has just been shattered. He's not who he thought he was. And his reputation before his friends, gone. 
And Jesus, his savior, he's about to die in shame. He hasn't even conceived of a resurrection at this point. So he's desperate. Here's the thing. Maybe you've noticed. Desperation lends itself well to belief. When you've got nothing left, sometimes all you have is belief. Rock bottom is a tough path to go. But it's not without its benefits. Because when you get there, you're ready to embrace Christ for who he is. And from rock bottom, he's ready to say it. Jesus is alive. Before we move on, I want to ask you, do you think you can relate at all to Peter? Just (laughs) busted. Out of options, identity shattered, searching for something, anything to hold on to. But at least that paved the way for belief. Third person we see in the story is John. John's the healthiest one in the bunch, I think. By healthiest, I don't mean he can run the fastest, although he wants us to think that. Um, By healthiest, I mean, I think he's the only one of the disciples who has enough of a foundation to still know who he is when things got real. Jesus is on the cross. The whole thing's falling apart. He's the guy who still knew who he was. He's the mature one, I think, to some extent. I think you can build that argument. It's a little competitive, but... He's got his act together. And the thing is, with John, you got to realize, um, if you kind of rewind the story quite a bit, it becomes obvious. He it was not always that way. <laughs> he wasn't always like the steady one. In fact, in the early going, Jesus called him and James uh, the sons of thunder. And he called them the sons of thunder because oh, they were the ones who had this bright idea when they had like this tiny little nothing of an altercation with some unsuspecting village people. It was John who was like, I got an idea. I'm with Jesus, buddy. He's going to call down fire from heaven and destroy you all. And Jesus was like, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? Call you the sons of thunder. That's your name. He was that guy, just impulsive and immature. He's the guy who thought it'd be a great idea to send his mom to do his bidding for him, to go do some politicking with Jesus to see if he could land one of Jesus's, one of the seats on Jesus's left or right hand in glory. Jesus was like, you don't know what you're asking for, buddy. He's that guy. But we see, especially around the events of the crucifixion, that he's not that guy anymore. He's matured. And that impulsivity is gone And the fact is, every single one of the disciples but John bailed on Jesus. And he was the one who was there with him until he breathed his last. I think you can pretty easily build the case from Scripture that he was Jesus' best friend in the world. He was the guy that Jesus asked to take care of his mom. There's some trust there. There's some foundation. He didn't ask just anybody that. The thing with John is he had once been one person, but now he's walked this path the last few years, and he's been following Jesus and weighing his claims and applying them to his life and trying to get, a, get his head around reality. And he comes to an empty tomb and he pauses to think and to pray and to evaluate. Man, what am I looking at right now? And then he steps in, comes to the same conclusion as Peter, and he chooses to believe. Before you move on, let's, let's stop and ask ourselves, do you think you could relate to John at all? Someone on a, a diligent path. 
He's been from point A to B to C to D. And as a result of that diligent path, you're not who you used to be. You're a lot more mature than you once were. You've sowed your wild oats. You're a different person now. And that's given you a foundation. And as it did for John, I hope you'll realize that is a foundation that has made you ready to believe. Not ready to stop scrutinizing, by the way. John didn't. He took the time to evaluate what was in front of him. But he was also ready to believe. Fourth one, of course, is Thomas. Thomas. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, it bugs me to no end that his nickname is Doubting. Everybody calls him Doubting. Thomas? Oh, Doubting Thomas. Doubt, as if he's the only person in the Bible who ever had doubts. We could put the word Doubting in front of every name but Jesus's in this Bible, and all of yours as well. The reason why it bothers me anymore is Jesus already gave him a cool nickname. He's Ditto. That's cool. Well, we got to call him Doubting Thomas. But he did doubt. He was a skeptic. And that's all right. Here's the thing. Maybe you know some of the folks like this. Maybe you are folks like this. He was bound and determined he's not going to be anybody's fool. All right? I'm not going to be anybody's fool. I don't know this for sure, but, man, I'm willing to bet that at some point in his backstory, he made that mistake. And he was somebody fool, somebody's fool. He was the sucker. And he paid dearly for it. And he made a vow right then. I'm not going to be anybody's fool. I'll never be somebody's sucker ever again. Thing is, you think about his, his position. Like, he has now heard from the most credible sources he knows, his best friends in the world, confirmed and repeated testimonies of the thing that Jesus had been talking about, his resurrection. He's alive, just like he said. He's alive. But he decided, no way. I'm not going to be anybody's fool. I'm nobody's sucker. It didn't do the trick. The truth is, he probably had a really, you know, rational, analytical mind. He's probably still trying to get his head around the miracles that he saw with his own eyes. He's still trying to figure out how that went down and could be legitimate. And now he's supposed to believe in a resurrection that he didn't see. And what I want us to see, I just think it's so important that Jesus came all the way to him. Like that whole scene where he revealed himself behind locked doors to all of the disciples, poof, all of that, peace be with you. He did it already. He was like, ah, it took eight days, but now they're all together behind locked doors. I'm going to do the whole thing all over again just for, just for Thomas. Poof, peace be with you. And he came to Thomas and he spoke his name and he showed him his wounds and his hands and his side. And now he believed. I want you to notice from the story, it's important that you not miss it. There is no spite in Jesus. There's no spite in this. He's not dumping shame. It's just kindness. He came and met Thomas in his doubt and he led him to belief. So I wonder if you can relate at all to Thomas. Any part of that resonates with you, I'm determined to be nobody's fool. I'm not going to be the sucker again. Rational, hesitant, wants to see, to believe. I think Jesus would have something very specific to say to each of these four. These, are, these aren't just individuals. These are types, archetypes, really. There's male and female on the list. has nothing to do with gender, of course. These are broad strokes. 
types. I think Jesus has something to say to each. If you related the most to Mary, I think the Lord would come to you kindly and would say, man, I get it. You're right. The world is broken. Like it's real busted. And you've seen more than your share. And I'll confirm for you what you already know. Life's not fair. It's not fair. But then I also think he would lean in, look you right in the eye and say, but I'm telling you now, I really am making all things new. I really, I, I really am putting all things back together. The sad things will come untrue because I'm alive. This is the work that I am doing. And if you're listening, that's a big if I know, but if you're listening, I believe today he'll call your name just like he did Mary's. And you'll recognize it. Because things really do turn around. And he really is the answer. If you relate more to Peter, I would say this. um, There's real opportunity at rock bottom. I'm not sure who, but a wise person once said, don't ever let a good crisis go to waste. Man, it's a tough road to go. But once you've gone down it, it has opportunity. It brings you a place where, you know, all these things that you cling to that you don't want to let go of, sometimes life just takes them all anyway. And then Jesus will come and speak your name and say, all right, how about now? There's an opportunity in the desperation. And here's the thing. You know it. Just, just like Tom, just like Peter did. You know, he walked in. He saw what was going on. He evaluated it quickly. He knew this isn't a hoax. This isn't a scam. He's alive. I think the same would be true in your mind as well. And he's here. He's inviting you, man. He's inviting you to belief. He's offering to lead you now to belief and new and eternal life that comes with it. The third one's John. I think a lot of folks might relate to John. Um, You're not who you used to be. You've been through a few phases, and now you're at this one. You've got a foundation you didn't have before. You're mature in the way you you once were before. That journey has not been in vain. That journey has been fruitful at every step, whether you felt it or not. The Lord has brought you to this point, and you're not who you used to be. And stand on the foundation that you have now and do what John did. Look around. Take stock. This is real. This is real. You haven't been caught up in a fantasy or some cult or some fly-by-night deal. This is real. You know it's real. Jesus is alive. And it's time to dive in. And if Thomas, if that's who you relate to the most, man, I just want, I want to say this, and please don't miss it. Your doubt is not a sin. It's not a sin. It's human. It's profoundly human. That bright-eyed, bushy-tailed person who believes absolutely everything they've ever seen, they've got it too. They'll never tell you, but they've got doubt too. It's human. It's why we need faith. We all need faith. You need to know this as well. God will never tell you to stop thinking. He's not annoyed. God will never tell you to stop questioning. But, and you know this, you know this, because you've lived the alternative for a long time. At some point, 
you have to choose to trust. You have to. At some point, you have to forfeit the luxury of certainty. You don't need faith if you've got certainty, but we need faith to know Jesus. Certainty is not part of the deal. Faith is. You need a foundation. He is that foundation. He is. And so I would say to you what Jesus said to Thomas, don't be faithless any longer. He had chosen not to believe. All right, choose otherwise. And then he adds, blessed are those who believe, though they haven't seen. Uh, David, wherever you are, man, you can come on up. He's going to help us out a little bit. Guys, it's the greatest three words. Uh, Jesus is alive. (laughs) He has died for us, and he is alive. And I'll remind you, this is the ultimate hinge of all reality, whether he is alive or whether he is dead. If he is alive, it confirms all that we believe as Christians. I'll read again to you Romans 10, verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The cross makes a way for forgiveness. God is just. Just means he has to punish sins. He can't, a a horrible, only a horrible judge and he wouldn't be in the job long if he just said, yeah, you're guilty, but go home, it's cool. That's a bad judge. We have a just judge. We want to have a just judge. But that means the judgment rests upon us. Christ in his mercy stepped in and said, put the judgment on me so that they can be forgiven and I'll remain a just judge. Cross has made a way for forgiveness. The resurrection means he has made a way for eternal life. We need not just to be forgiven, but to be brought from death to life. Jesus' cross and resurrection has made a way. I also want to point out, I think it's really significant that before the story ends, Jesus comes personally to all four of these individuals. He speaks individually to each of them. Wherever you're at on this spectrum, or maybe it's another place that you're at, I want you to know Jesus comes all the way to you. And I think days like today are really significant. I think days like today are when Jesus comes all the way to us and invites us into belief. And we could push back and say, I got lots of questions. I know, let's go. Let's move toward belief. Well, there's a few theological things that have I know, I know, I know. There's a bunch you don't know. Let's go into belief. Well, I still have questions about how the world could be like this. And I know I'll teach you all that stuff. But I'm alive. And this is real. Come with me. Let's move toward belief. We're going to take a moment to pray as we do every week. And during our prayer, I I invite you to take a step into belief. Wherever you're at, whether that's a step into new belief for the first time saying, this is real and Jesus is alive. Or whether you're being reminded today, man, I've let this live in the back back burner when the fact is it's the ultimate hinge of all reality. I need to step more fully into the belief that I already have. We're going to create space now to do that. And just a heads up in case you're nervous, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands or stand up or come forward. We don't do much of that around here. It's fine, but we don't do much of it. not going to do that today. 
But I want to invite you now, as we have a moment in the stillness to pray on our own, to hear the voice of the Lord speaking your name and inviting you into belief. I'll get us started in that prayer. Jesus, you are good. You are beautiful. You are our Savior. You died in our place and on our behalf. We are so thankful. And we believe that you've been risen from the grave. Sure, there's doubt mingled in. There's always questions. But we have forfeited the luxury of certainty. And in faith, we believe, Jesus, you are alive. And you've made a way for us to live eternally with you. Father, no matter where we are on that spectrum, from barely believing that at all, not believing that at all, or having believed that for decades, Lord, would you move us now further into belief, further into the truth that will literally save our souls. us and leading us into greater belief.